Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, where filmmakers become entrepreneurs. With my dad, he's a dork. Welcome to the third episode of the Film Trooper Podcast. I'm your host, Scott McMahon. If you haven't listened to the first two, um, I recommend doing so, because you wouldn't understand what's going on with this third one. Actually, the first episode is just a really quick primer about what Film Trooper Podcast is all about and what we're trying to do with Film Trooper and the Film Trooper Academy. And uh, the second episode is actually the, f- this is confusing, the first part of my interview with cinematographer Bryce Fortner, who is the cinematographer slash DP director of photographer on Portlandia. So this is the second half of that interview. Again, we were uh, recording it in a cafe in Northeast Portland called Dots Cafe. So there's going to be some background noise, and uh, it's going to sound a little different than what you're probably used to in other podcasts that are a little bit more polished than what mine is. But I uh, hope you enjoy. But before we get into it, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, uh, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. I know it's a lot to ask. You know, I think the first couple of five-star reviews will be my mother and maybe my brother Although I don't count on my siblings to uh, give me five-star reviews. Um, I might have to eke that one out of, out of them. So I'll probably hit my friends and family up first. So you can kind of look at the first couple reviews on iTunes um, and just know that um, I, I called in some favors. But if you do like it, I will announce your name on the podcast in the upcoming episodes. So if your name is like uh, Jim Bob Smith... I go, hey, thank you, Jim Bob Smith, for the five-star review. And, um, and please let me know um, what ways I can help you um, become a filmmaking entrepreneur. Now on to the second part of the interview with our guest, cinematographer Bryce Fortner. Well, that now, the, the, we talked about it before, the, the new Panasonic um, AF100 right. just came out. So it's a true video camera with finally using, you know, Yeah, the, yeah, it, it, the exactly. It's, it's a true video camera that shoots 1080. Um, and it uses inter- interchangeable lenses, but I, I finally actually got to test it, I think, after oh, you and good. I talked. yeah. No, not good, huh? Sorry, Panasonic, but I, I wasn't in love with your camera. It's, you know, I was, you know, like to compare the, the Panasonic AF100 to the 5D, you're, you're, you're getting a lot more user usability and a lot, it's a lot more user-friendly of a camera, the AF100. But you're, you're sacrifi- sacrificing that usability for sensor size. Right. And sensor size boils down to your depth of field. So to me... I was sacrificing. It just felt like I was taking a step back, honestly, in terms of, of, of a high definition workflow. That's true. It, it felt like I was getting uh, image didn't have the rolling shutter issues. Uh, it's debatable if it has more latitude than the five D, but it's definitely a lot more video friendly than the five, like monitor friendly than the five D. Right. But my depth of field felt like I was shooting on a DVX, you know, and it was now it there's was disappointing. In Europe, they just released uh, Sony is releasing their uh, next line of NEX cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, it just it looks like a like what I guess the Red Scarlet was supposed to be, sure, you sure. know, and it's very um, modular, so you can sure. add stuff to it. I haven't, you know, I haven't worked with it, you know, yeah. ever. But I mean, I'm just watching stuff online. But it's our again now. Now finally, the bridge is it's kind of merged. Finally, it's mm-hmm. like Panasonic has released the first iteration of that. Yeah, exactly. You know, Sony now has an answer to that. Yeah. You know what will Canon do? Remember Canon when I remember they came out with the XL1 was a big deal because yeah. they had you know yeah. interchangeable lenses on sure. a TV camera. Yeah. But it's fun to see all that stuff happen because uh, and seeing red because for the longest time the, the red one everybody was waiting for this Scarlet right. a little bit more um, price. Um, uh, what do you call it? 
uh, I'm li- we're missing the words, but yeah. a little bit more in the price range of a lot of, um, you know, freelancers sure. where they can dish out five grand as opposed to 10 grand or sure. whatever it sure. is. But, um, yeah, I but, mean, it's, yeah. But so how, how many, um, how many years did you get a chance to work with, with the red? So I, yeah, I mean, I, I got to work with one of the very first, uh, one of the first hundred reds that were ever built. Actually, the company Ben that I do a lot of work for, they had gotten in, gotten their foot in the door, and so I was. I think I worked with camera number like one twenty-five or something like that. So mm. it was. It was <laughs> that was kind of cool. So I mean, I've, I've worked with Red for the past. I've been in Portland for three years. I've worked with the Red for almost three three years, and I guess that's about how old the the Red the Red One cameras are. Um, it's been um, it's been interesting. You know, it, it's it, it's interesting to you know you to kind of bring it back to the five D a little bit. You know, the the Red the Red One, which is the camera that's out now. Um, was seen as that was seen as the the modular alternative to a lot of HD cameras that were out at the time, and then the 5D came along, and suddenly that kind of really redefined what modular and what small form factor was. Because the, the Red One was considered a camera with a small form factor, and then you see the 5D, which is a still camera, and it's like the form factor of those two cameras is not <laughs> it's not even close. And so then you know Red completely revamped what their Epic was going to be, and I could be getting the facts wrong, but it's, from an outsider's perspective, it just seemed like they completely revamped what the Epic was going to be, and it had the exact same body size as as a 5D. It happens to shoot 5K at 120 frames per second, you know, and it's it's cool. I mean, it's I've not shot with the Alexa yet, but uh, Aeroflex, who is primarily a film right. film film company, just came out with a camera called the Alexa, which shoots shoots high definition video, and it's supposed to have more latitude than film. It's the, the workflow is supposed to be super friendly, and it's it's. It's been cool. I mean, I I feel like the combination of red and the 5D just spurned this whole, you know, because suddenly the, fi- the the great thing about the the red was that it was an affordable camera. You know, HD cameras at the time, like the F900, which kind of sucked, by the way. Yeah, uh, no, I remember we had an early version at the yeah. Sony, and it was still it felt like a video camera still. They're huge. They're these ENG style right. like news style cameras, and it's there's these huge cameras, and it's like the menus are just buried deep, and it's like it was it was not. Anyhow, so the red one suddenly was smaller than that, and. You, anybody could buy it was like a twelve thousand dollar camera that shot 4k video it was so it's crazy yeah yeah it's cool so now suddenly digital technology is almost surpassing film and that the alexa has more latitude than film does that's crazy and honestly a lot of the the stuff i've been seeing is 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 gorgeous to me i mean i'm not you know i'm just sort of i consider more of a layman i mean i have a little bit of an eye for it but it's not i won't be able to tell you all the specifics of the color space and all that kind of stuff but um, it's been exciting to see the last mm-hmm. few years of the digital revolution, yep. um, just let you know freeing it up. And it's always fun going on to uh, Vimeo yep. and just checking out uh, people's sure. stuff, what yeah. they're doing, yeah. you know. And 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 I read somewhere that Vimeo, like um, this is um, for those who don't know, we'll, I'll give you more links about it. But sort of like a YouTube for um, um, cinematography. For, and photographer um, mm-hmm. enthusiasts, you yeah. know they're they're showing their yeah, stuff. Much much better Kodak. The Kodak. Oh yeah, it looks so great. The footage looks better. And yeah. But I read somewhere that this is sort of the replacement for the film festival, because, mm. you know, um, you saw the film festivals. They kind of are a nice cultural gathering. Sure. Everybody gets together and sure. a thing. Yeah, it's but a fun you, thing to go to. But but if you want to immediately find stuff, like this huge searchable database of stuff. Sure. It's like Vimeo is, just, is showing you all these films constantly being made and pushing each other, you know, and yeah. it's, uh, it's it's refreshing, exciting, it's just mm-hmm. different. Yeah, no, it's cool. It's, it's hard to keep up with sometimes, but oh. it's, you know, it's but it is, it's cool. I mean, especially because the fact that digital has come so far in the past couple of years and now it's... I want to talk about your project still, like, so sure, sure. Portlandia, of course, is gr- 
it's just great. And yeah, I, it was that was cool. a great achievement yeah. to, to be part of that, to be part yeah. of the second season coming up. I felt really lucky to be on it. Yeah, it was fun. And um, but I really liked. Um, I saw that you know you did a, a, a was it a feature film called City Baby? Was it a full it feature? Did. Yeah, it, it was a full feature. It was shot here in Portland last fall. We shot, shot on it, the red, right? It was shot on the red. Uh, it was on the updated sensor of the red, so it's the Mysterium X, which people call the MX sensor of the red. Okay. So, you know, compared to the first version of the red, it had more, I think the resolution was the same, but it had more dynamic range. It had more, just had more subtlety than the first version of red did. And um, we happened to have it donated to the project, which is really awesome. And, <laughs> and I think a great thing about, they might have paid a little bit, but it, it was like another great thing about living in Portland is that people someone has a red with this great sensor and they're willing to donate to a project because they want to support local filmmakers you know right. and, that's, and that's awesome and it's not that it doesn't happen in Los Angeles or New York or anywhere else but it's there's such a sense of community here in Portland that the, the budget on City Baby um, was I think 50 grand and to shoot you know a 110 page script for 50 grand in three weeks is daunting by any three any, weeks yeah, wow by, by, by anyone right. is daunting but I mean, we had so many locations, and we had people just coming in, helping out, donating their time for free, and they just want to be part of a project that I thought was was cool. And I've only seen the trailer, sure. so it's like I um, I haven't. I have to follow up on the website citybaby.com, yeah. I think it is. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it's coming along. I haven't seen an edit of the film yet, um, although I've heard really good things, and I, I know I know that we shot a good film again because we had so many locations, and it because looks we great. Had such a great camera. Thank you. Yeah, it was it was fun. It was nice to do. It was it was funny. I, I think if I hadn't done Portlandia before the feature, I think I would have been overwhelmed by the feature. But because Portlandia moved at such an insane pace, that the the pace that some people thought was crazy on City Baby was kind of like, Neh. you know, it was like, <laughs> it, it was cool. It allowed me to to deal with it, you know. And um, now, but I, yeah, I like the style that you have. Um, I really li- I really like the, sort of that natural the natural style. I think what it is is that we've gone so. Um, such a generation or in the mm-hmm. upcoming generation we've grown up on these video cameras right. of all you know cell phone cameras or right. home video cameras so we're sort of used to this uh, style of lighting that mm-hmm. is you draw from real world sure. sources sure. and um, you know so where the background is almost blown out you know because normally you know right. Whatever film one hundred and one cinematography mm-hmm. is like you know don't, you, don't don't blow out your window exactly yeah, don't blow yeah, out your yeah, windows yeah. like don't but there's something aesthetically um, Realistic about it. I don't know what it is. It, it, it's just because I said I think we're just been kind of mm-hmm. um, used to seeing on YouTube, used to seeing sure. on Vimeo, and just people's cameras. That sure. when if you put that same look with a very dramatic scene, mm-hmm. it feels real. It just feels like it's something real, as opposed to when a more amateur sort of DP sort of puts together their sure. basic lighting. Um, Kit scenario of like the key fill backlight, right, right. it just looks sort of fake, you sure. know. No, it's it's true, and yeah, it's true. And, and like even the eighties and nineties were kind of an awkward time in that respect too, you know, because the seventies kind of brought about this um, cinema verite kind of street photography style that was yeah. popular, and then the eighties and nineties came along, and it, it I don't say it was a regression. It was it, it it got back to that kind of three point lighting style where they had people who had exaggerated lights hitting the back of their hair, and you know it just felt like I just watched Roadhouse this weekend, and it's you know, <laughs> very good cinematographer, but the way that it was lit is just feels so dated at this time, you right? Know? And it's I guess that was probably late eighties, early nineties that it was done. That's right, you know? mid eighties, mid eighties. Yeah. I, I remember um, I had to do this this when I was down in L.A. and I was um, pitching my um, independent film and mm-hmm. we're doing this package and stuff like that. I was a comedy I'd written. And when I talk about um, 
the looks. And I had to say, like, this film is going to be more naturalistic, sure. you know, more natural looking mm -hmm. as opposed to what I call presentational. Sure. And so I showed examples of, like, some of the older um, comedies where mm -hmm. just literally how like the characters would be standing. They'd be standing side right. by side, right. you know, all lit full frontal, right. and they would then deliver their comedy that way. Mm -hmm. And it just looks sort of unnatural. Right. And then in some films, you would have the same scene played out, but it was all over, like, um, you know, the foreground would be sort of uh, blurred out. Sure. And you're, you know, it's like a camera kind of like trying to peek over somebody's shoulder right. to try to get the, the, the bit, the, mm -hmm. you know, the bits and pieces of the scene. Hey. And... Um, I was trying to explain that's the sort of the difference between sort of more realistic or natural sure. looking versus what I call presentational. Sure, which is, I think, and, you know, I mentioned The Hangover before, and that cinematographer, I think that's one thing he's really good at, is making this comedy feel like you're really there with these people. Right. You know, it didn't feel like a movie the way that it was lit and the way that it was shot. Yeah. And that's, that's a hard thing to do with comedy, you know, because you move at such a quick pace, and he did it, and it's There's awesome. a difference with, like, a lot of the early Adam Sandler films. You know, sure. I love Adam Sandler, totally. but it, his, his style was very screwball, slapstick, Presentational. I think I'm good. Yeah. Okay. Oh, good. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very uh, straightforward. Like we're gonna sell this sure. this bit of comedy, which is like over the top, which right. is unrealistic. Right. You're right. Re uh, the Hangover had to come in, and they had to. Mm -hmm. They were all about. It has to feel real enough yep. that even if it's outrageous, it still felt real. Exactly. And so the cinematography uh, accompanied mm -hmm. that. If it was sh if it was shot more presentational, it would probably. Been f it Subconsciously, the audience might have gone. This feels exactly. kind of cheesy. Exactly. Yeah, and, I, and that's that's kind of the interesting thing about cinematography is most people, when they watch a film, they don't understand what it is, but you, you can definitely respond to it. And it's you know you, you look at a movie again like Roadhouse, and it's just the way that it's shot. It's so your your gut tells you something's not. Yeah, you don't know, know right? You, you know what it is, but something something's just not right. You know? I've and seen some. Yeah. It's funny. I've even seen some films back in the seventies, the great films that mm -hmm. like. Um, I think Easy Rider. Sure. Easy Rider had like a lot of outdoor, sure. sort of naturalistic, that, mm -hmm. that sort of um, blown out sunset, golden, right. you know, tone to it. Mm -hmm. But with some of the scenes they've had to do indoors, yeah. <laughs> you could totally tell like, whoa, that, that <laughs> light must have been so bright because the shadow it's leaving behind them sure. is almost too intense, you uh, know. I'm kind of embarrassed to admit I've never actually seen Easy Rider, but I've That's seen a lot right. of films in that time and it's like, in, I can You can get it and probably yeah. just fast forward real quick yeah. because <laughs> honestly, it was like a, tra a road traveling movie. It was yeah. them riding their bikes with a soundtrack right. and then you cut to a scene. Sure. And the only scenes really worth watching are the ones with Nicholson in it. Yeah. And he's only in halfway through the film. Because hmm. the other half is just like Peter Fonda and um, Dinner Sopper just stoned. Yeah. And yeah. it's just kind of a little slow. But, right. but you, could, you can kind of cut through it. I, I actually watch a lot of films that way now. Mm -hmm. is I kind of get the gist like, okay, sure. the story is this. And I will kind of fast forward through things because yeah. I'm saying, yeah, all right, he meets the girl. He's yeah. going to do this. Um, yeah, and, and that's interesting because, you know, it's, I think it's kind of telling and indicative in terms of the culture that films and projects are being made for now. You know, and that's, it's different because you know, before people – I don't know how to word it, but that's, to me that's, that's interesting. I think it's really – and I think it's telling. You know, it's like there's so much information. There's so much media. There's so much inundation on the Internet now that it's like people's intention spans, you know, are, are pretty – if you put a five-minute video on YouTube, mm -hmm. that's way too long. Way too long. Yeah, seriously. No, anytime somebody sends me a link to look at a video, I, I always check the runtime. If it's over three minutes, I'm like, I don't know. I guess, I guess, I'll, I guess I'll try it. Two minutes is like a little pushing it. Yeah, exactly. Three minutes for me is, is my limit, honestly. And that's, right. that's, that's, that's so funny. I mean, it's... So oh. if you're trying to create a webisode, because I, um, I talked to my friend Randall, the screenwriter. We talk mm -hmm. about this all the time. Because the project that I'm working on, 
you know, I was just trying to create. Sure. Um, I'm trying to create like short one minute, two minute mm-hmm. webisodes. Sure. You know, because I I know the attention span is like. Yeah. I'm gonna lose them yeah. after two minutes. Yeah. And. I remember hearing this other podcast. I can't remember where I heard it, but um, this um, this fellow was talking about the history of film, and you know, we started with the Nickelodeon, mm-hmm. the five, the, the nickel that goes in. Sure. You watch thirty seconds or ten seconds of somebody jumping over, like a mm-hmm. you know, a horse jumping over, like right. a um, wh- whatever you call a, um, a steeple, a steeple, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, and that was it. It was a small little screen. And then we went to these big screens, and it got even bigger because right. when television came in, they said, "Okay, we're going to make Cinemascope. Yeah. We're going to yeah. make this thing that goes yeah. around your head." Yeah. So the exhibitors have always had to compete with what's going on. Mm-hmm. DVDs get you know sure. all the home stuff is getting better, but yeah. they're like, "Okay, let's do 3D. Yeah. Let's push 3D." Yeah. So history is repeating itself, but all of a sudden now we have these iPhones, yep. and it's like it's gone back to the beginning. Or here's your Nickelodeon, yeah. and here's my YouTube yeah. fix. You know, hmm. it's interesting. Yeah, no, so. it's 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 weird. Yeah, I mean, you know, I remember. I, I wasn't there at the time, but my wife was telling me she went to some like family function, and she there's like she had an 11 year old nephew that came up to her and heard that I was a cinematographer. He was 11 years old, and he was asking me cameras about the he was asking me questions about the red and about the resolution that it shot and the frame re- and like the frames. Per 11 second, years old. 11 years old. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like when I think back to 11, I mean, I didn't know. And it was like, how does a how does he know what the red is? How does he know what the word resolution means? And it's to me that was just so. I was like. I wish I'd been there. I would have loved to just talk to him more because that, that was so... That blew my mind. An 11-year-old understands the stuff that it took me a long time to understand. You know, and it's, it's just... I think it's really telling in terms of what people are kind of getting born into and what they're being exposed right. to now. You know, it's interesting. And, it how, and how that's going to affect film. You know, it's... Because it's, you're talking about doing a podcast. It has to be under two minutes as opposed to before. You know, you try to do... I mean, podcast is still, I guess, a new thing or a webisode. Webisode, right. Webisode. But it's still, it's like... I know, it's, just, it's interesting. I'm curious to see how it's going to affect filmmaking. Right. You know. You know, and it's all that kind of stuff. It's We, we had thought about, you know, I'm looking into, like, do we get rid of our cable and just go internet sure. only? Sure. And then, you know, we'd be watching we stuff on Hulu. Yeah. You know, yeah. I honestly, we would do it. But my daughter watches the Disney Channel and yeah. Nickelodeon, and I have not been able to find a adequate replacement for all the shows that she wants mm-hmm. online. They don't supply it on Hulu. Sure. Like the, the shows that I watch, I can get on Netflix or Hulu, no problem, mm-hmm. Hulu Plus or whatever it is. Sure. So I can easily watch everything I want without yeah. any issues, but I realize that she actually dominates the television. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> She's on in front of the TV more than I am, so yeah. I yeah. hardly get a chance to watch movies. I, I, like That's the problem. When I do get a chance to watch movies, it's late at night, Sure. and then I'll... I really have like a limited time, sure. so I, I forced to kind of skip through it. Yeah, you know, I'm like, you know, yeah, no, totally. No, it's just, it's just, it's, it's interesting. You know, it's like, you know, having like DVRs. I, I find myself listening to the radio or like NPR sometimes, and I kind of tune out. And I'm like, oh, let me rewind that. And I'm like, oh, wait, I can't rewind that. It's the radio. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just kind of funny. What? Here's yeah. a film that I, I just saw recently, um, a couple weeks ago. Kendall wanted to see it. It was a remake of, I think it's a Swedish film or some European film. Uh, or maybe Russian or something. I, it's, I know it's there. It, it was a, it's a vampire film called um, Let the Right One In. Let the it? Right One yeah. In. Yeah. But we saw the remake first, yeah. so yeah. we saw Let Me In. Yeah. Um, with that great that girl that was in Kick Ass yeah, who played yeah, uh, she's awesome Kick Girl. I love she's really her. good in Let Me In too. She's yeah. so good. So yeah. um, thanks. Thank you. So we saw that film. Mm-hmm. It was all right, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. But I really enjoyed the cinematography because yeah. it was supposed to take place in the eighties. Right. You know. Right. And they almost like I almost felt like the director and the cinematographer said, "We're going to make our version of ET." Sure. 
because <laughs> yeah. it had a lot of the um, and the, uh, you forget, forgive me the the, the cinematographer from ET. Uh, uh, his name is Alan Davio. Right. That whole that whole style that he had, where the, it was his the blown out backlight. You it's know. a really stylized film. It was kind of immense. Uh, and amazed going back and looking at it again. You know, it's, it's yeah. not the film that I remember as a child. It's a really stylized looking film. I remember seeing the little behind the scenes of the, the latest Star Trek from J.J. Abrams. Mm-hmm. You know how they they literally had that that light they used to like to do the lens there. flare yeah. to like yeah. just throw it into the camera's lens. Yeah, I mean they were using that all over the place. Yeah. Well, that same style they had a little bit uh, mm-hmm. naturally in um, uh, Let, Let Me In, mm-hmm. which is that remake. Yeah. And um, I just thought, I just was curious if you had seen it or you've seen that style. I, I, I'd seen it. I'm actually really aware of that cinematographer, too. He's, a, he's an Australian cinematographer. His name is Greg, Greg Frazier. And um, I, I actually seen a short film that he had done, it was years ago, before I you know, even realized who he was. And it was called, yeah, his name is Greg, Greg Frazier, is the cinematographer. And uh, he did this short film that I'd seen years ago. It was called uh, Lucky. Um, and it was, it was it was directed by I think he was a stunt man that, that turned into a director and I'm forgetting the director's name but it was um, it was an amazing little short it, it all took place it basically it starts in the trunk of a car and you, this guy kind of wakes up and he's you know like I think he has a lighter or something and then you realize with him that he's in the trunk of a car and then you suddenly realize this trunk the car that he's in is actually moving and then you realize he's also tied his hands are tied and his feet are bound so he then like flips open the trunk and he, he he's a really talented guy who's bound out so he ends up like climbing on the car and it turns out that nobody's driving this car he's just <laughs> driving down a dirt road and then you know it's got like a brick on the, on the on the accelerator or something like that and so this guy has to figure out how to get into the car and shut it down before you know whatever the hell happens happens wow it's pretty amazing and it's i mean the stunts in it are fantastic and the camera work is is phenomenal and it eventually he he eventually he breaks his way into the windshield I think and he eventually stops the car and I think as he turns I think he goes to turn the car off I think the car explodes or something so it's kind of a unhappy ending but it was it's uh, the uh, the the yeah the, the camera work and the um, stunts are so amazing that I was just engaged the whole time wow and then I ended up seeing another short film that he had done called uh, Crossbow um, another Australian film absolutely amazing I, I recommend if you have any time to, to if you have twenty minutes to kill. Watch a short film called Crossbow. Crossbow, it's phenomenal. Okay. I'd seen it at a festival, and it totally, uh, for me, it, it just kind of reconvinced me. The short films are hard. It's, it's hard to know what market you're making that for. You know, it's hard yeah. to think that anybody's actually going to see it. But then, I, I don't know what kind of distribution or how many people actually saw Crossbow. But then, when you see how good a short film can be like that, it's it's just kind of I don't know. So it kind of restarted my love affair of short films. So anyhow, so the, the DP is he's. He's doing really well for himself. He shot Let Me In. I think he was 33 or something like that when he shot it. So, I mean, by, by cinematographer standards, being in your early 30s shooting a studio feature is very big deal. Is a big deal. Um, but he'd been working hard at, at you know, I, I talked to his, his, somebody who was his former agent. And, you know, basically, he's based in Australia. He was repped by an agent in Los Angeles. And he took work in L.A. under the pretense all the clients thought he was local. So he would, on, on his own dime, he would fly himself out to L.A. to do oh projects that he realized would be beneficial to his career so he was he was spending his own money in the end he was in any up in the black to do some of these jobs but then you look at some of these jobs he was doing he was shooting these amazing commercials for xbox and right, playstation right. i mean it's just like his, his resume is crazy and then he shot he just shot something for spike jones and he shot let me in and his this work is phenomenal um how do you work so, like um i mean how, what's your style so when you how do you like to work with directors mm-hmm. you know i mean do you like a director to say like just sort of block out the scene mm-hmm. and then let you sort of just cover it, 
or you know, sometimes I, I, directors yeah. are like, I need a shot here. Sure. You know. I I I prefer, and I've, I've worked with with both kinds, but I, I prefer a director who who knows what he wants visually out of a piece. And I've definitely worked with people with director who's like. You know, who, who will work with the actors and then leaves it up to me to kind of how I'm going to cover the scene with the camera. And I, I find the films are that much better when the director knows how to use a camera in addition to understanding how to work with actors. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a definite talent to be able to understand how to work with people, with actors, and then know how to cover it. So, you know, I, I like to have a filmmaker, a director who I can talk with beforehand. We can go over a shot list or storyboards and can come up with an idea of how we're going to cover a scene. But then I like a director who's also open to, you know, we go into a scene with this conception, but then we see the rehearsals with these actors, and we realize that how we planned it just isn't going to work, or it's going to do a disservice to it, or it's such an emotional scene that the more coverage that we shoot is just going to be detrimental to the actors. Um, so I like someone who's also open to change. You know, it's I think one of my favorite things to be able to do is, like, say I go into, I think, I think we're going to cover a scene with, say, six or eight shots. I think this is how we're going we're gonna to shoot this scene. And then we watch rehearsals, and then the director and I figure out a way together that we're going to cover it in one shot. Oh, and, and to me, yeah. that's such a rad feeling. It doesn't happen all the time, but it's it's awesome. I mean, I think minimalism is is key, and that's the way that I like, try to light, and that's the way that I try to shoot. You know, I don't like to shoot for coverage. I don't like to try to overlight things if I don't have to. And right. So it's awesome when you can find a way to tell a scene in one one shot. You know, it's I like. Awesome. Um, I was looking at like a little bit of your the trailer for Graffiti Balls. Yeah, yeah, shot. yeah, yeah. But I liked about it is like I love those wide shots that sure. sh- that. It, that show like the city, like mm-hmm. it's where the characters are like sure. very small and sure. sort of the, the bottom of the screen, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of sets up that mood where yeah. there's sometimes that shot's held on there for a long time, sure. you know, and then yeah. and whatever drama or the scene sort of yeah. plays out that way. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, it's, it, that was a great, great, great project. It was a short film that I shot in, in the winter here in Portland. So, it, you know, it, by default, it has a very gray kind of dreary, right. dreary look to it, but that's what we wanted for the piece. And, um, that, that, that's a filmmaker that I happen to believe, I believe in immensely. The, the director's name is Andrew Elmaker, um, and I, I feel local like guy. He was local. Um, he's going to Columbia in New York right now for okay. film school. He's a graduate student there, so it was actually a grad student project that he did. And um, but I shot a feature for him last year, two years ago, two years ago when he was still living here in Portland. And I, I just I, I can't say it enough. I believe in that guy one hundred percent, and I think he's such an amazing director. And it was great. I, it was I've never had a more collaborative experience with a director, and that was that's yeah. That that's a project that's very very dear to me. I think oh, cool. because it's the, the director and I just clicked and we understood what we, what he, what we wanted from each other and what we believed we were on the same page the whole time for the project. And so it was it was a fun project. Yeah, yeah, sweet. Yeah. I was just yeah. yeah, I liked it. I mean, I, I even like this. Um, I like the stuff you've done with the Oregon Lottery, you yeah. know, campaigns. Yeah, you know, the shooting the five D stuff. 5D, the, um, yeah, it's interesting because um, how. How much control do you have or input sometimes you have with the color grading afterwards? You know, because yeah. for those who don't know, it's like sometimes like when you shoot with um, like digital cameras, sometimes, you know, when it gets to the editor or the colorist, you know, it, it takes on a whole nother life at that sure. point. Sure, but No, it's true. And, and a lot of times um, on short films or commercials or features, the, um, the look of the piece kind of gets out of the cinematographer's hands. And I, I think a, a lot of producers, which is I mean, which is really interesting because that's kind of what the cinematographer's job is, is to make the look of a film. But a lot of producers have it have it in their brains that cinematographers are going to sit in the color correct suite and are going to waste time because it's, it's our job to... We're, we're going to sweat the minutiae that nobody cares about, and so we're going to spend 
the studio's money to make it look better when no one's going to notice the difference. But it's that's kind of a short-sighted view because it's you know, you're completely excluding the person who was involved on set with how the film was going to look. You're excluding that person from the final look of the piece, and it's it's you know you, you can do an amazing job lighting it and exposing it and framing it, but then if someone comes in and they, they decide to take the black levels of of that you know and just crush it like crazy, so your blacks are super crunched because that editor or that compositor happens to like the way you know crushed black levels look on an image, mm-hmm. it can completely do a disservice to the look of the film, no matter how good it looks. Yeah, you know, I've definitely had projects where I, I'm very proud of the way that it was photographed, and then the final color just is. I'm like, I don't, I can't look at this, you know. And that's, right. Um, and I think that really undermines the project. So with commercials, this is kind of the, the good thing and the bad thing about digital. You know, before when you'd shoot commercials on film, you had to go to a post house, you had to go to a telecine suite, you'd actually have a proper color, color correct session with a colorist who for a living would color correct commercials and music videos and films. And that's what they did. And it was amazing to have that kind of input from somebody who, outside of yourself, who cared just as, much as, just as much about the look, but you could have a dialogue with. But now that you're shooting like the Oregon Laundry commercials, we shot that on the 5D as well. Um, people are coloring their projects in-house now. Um, right. You know, they use Apple Color or they use Final Cut or they use After Effects. Or Magic Bullet. Or Magic Bullet, yeah. exactly. And so, you know, because they have it in their, their, their brains, uh, sorry, that sounds like I'm putting them down. They have it in their heads that... I'm going to waste time if I'm involved in that project. They end up doing it in a house. And so there's, there's little things like highlights are gone too far. And it's, I don't know. So the Oregon Lottery thing, fortunately, they were, they actually invited me to the color correct session. They, they did it in house too, but they didn't invite me to the color correct session. On oh, that. cool. They, the client ended up wanting to go a slightly different direction that I wanted to. I wanted to make it a little bit, um, slightly more stylized just because it was a commercial and it's a very simple piece and the coverage is very simple. So I wanted it to look a little more dynamic than, you know, how we shot it. But, um, the agency disagreed, and so because it, it, I think the end result wasn't it more, um, let's say sepia tone, but mm-hmm. it was very, it had a very like um, overall sort of um, desaturated, yeah, kind of brownish mm-hmm. look to it, yep. which almost felt like it was a, like a '70s snuff film. Totally, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? That's funny. Yeah, in, yeah. In, in some, in some yeah. sense. No, it's funny because I mean the '70s is definitely a genre of filmmaking that I admire a lot as a cinematographer. Just the kind of leaps and bounds that were made for cinematography, right. and you know, cinematographers who are working now, that kind of naturalism, I think, really, that idea came about in the '70s. Oh know? yeah, you there's know, and it's, some. Yeah, it's crazy about the '70s. It's mm-hmm. it's when you look at the body of work that, that came out from studios. Sure. Oh yeah, no, the major studios were producing. Yeah, there's no way major studios are producing no way. this the, stuff the again. Studios Ever. don't have the balls to do that stuff anymore. Never. Like Disney has completely revamped themselves. So all they do is blockbusters now. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's like, I get you want to make money, but you just can't keep churning out like Pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, that's that's right. that, like what happened. I don't know. It's so, so again. So it's like you know, you, you keep that in mind with my 11 year old nephew in law or whatever yeah. who understands what resolution and the red camera is, and it's like, okay, so what is that going to mean for filmmaking in 20 years from now? Right. You know, like I'm really. I'm curious. You know, it's well. It's funny because, like I said before, I came up here. Um, I was mentioning. I think it's funny because I've done the podcast so many times, mm-hmm. and I don't know what it, actually which one I'm actually going to be <laughs> launching to iTunes. But uh, <laughs> right. the thing is, um, so after I um, lost my job at Sony, you know, I said, "Oh, screw it! I'm going to go for it. I'm going to mm-hmm. do what I always wanted to do is try to make movies." Sure. So I'd written this script and I was pushing it and I, I was working with my casting director, a dear friend of mine who or, you know, God bless her soul was like last year was um, was killed in a hit by run accident. I'm sorry. It was one of those yeah, it's one of those things that I, I have like this little list of people that I've known that mm-hmm. like people have died 
and I just kind of it's it's my sort of reference or perspective hmm. of like dear dear friends of mine that sure. I'm like hmm you know just kind of how, how short life I guess short life is yeah. and just like you know we got to keep pushing forward mm-hmm. but um, when we were making this trying to make this film um, I remember the, I came to this crossroads because I said I could have gone. I only had like so much money that where am I going to spend this money? Am I going to go to the Screenwriters Expo mm-hmm. and try to take the script to the beginning part of all production, which sure. starts at the Screenwriters Expo sure. or whatever, you know, the screenwriting process? Or I can go to the American film market mm-hmm. um, like a, a couple weeks later. Sure. And after reading about it, is that the American film market is essentially the same thing as the Cannes Films Market hmm. or the Cannes Films Festival. The, the, right. the difference is the Cannes Film Festival is all the... All the paparazzi, all the glitz and glamour, but the, there's an actual market sure. that there. Yeah. So the, all the same people that go to the market at the Cannes Film Market mm-hmm. is a, right, the same, same people way. that go to the American yeah. Film Market, yeah. but it's in Santa Monica and sure. it's way cheaper. Sure. So I remember going there, and I, I it's it's really like we're talking about being in LA, like mm-hmm. just the contacts, and mm-hmm. it's really easy to meet people. I mean, you just you're just there. You start up a dialogue. Somebody knows somebody else. Right. I, sh- I had a package. I didn't have a film. I just yeah. wanted to see like lists. Listen, this is the these are the actors that mm-hmm. I have attached to it, and they were known actors, you know, but not like but they weren't internationally known. Sure. Like they they had no weight. Sure, I had to find out whether or not the package I was putting together had any value to mm-hmm. um, in foreign investors. Sure. You know, sure. And it's really hard with um, American comedies because they don't translate well right. overseas. Right. I found out that like. Like actors like Will Ferrell and Steve Carell don't translate that well overseas hmm. because they're sort of very topical uh, comedy. Right. But somebody like Rowan Atkinson, who is Mr. Bean, sure. is an sure. international superstar right. because he doesn't say anything. He's right. all physical comedy. Sure. And, and that doesn't necessarily translate here to the States, which is Exactly. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. He, he'll kill it, and he'll kill it for years and right. years. So I remember I became really good friends um, for a very short stint with this woman who's a buyer, a film buyer mm-hmm. at the Sin- Singapore market. Okay. And uh, here's another sad story. She um, she passes away giving birth to uh, her oh, second man. daughter or something. Wow. And it's like, it, again, all these things ha- kind of happen mm-hmm. that makes you kind of reflect on life that, you know, there's more than life than sometimes just film. Sure. Which probably gave us reason why sure. we're up here in Portland, which yeah. is like, you know what? There's a, there's other stuff to do, but you know because we're artists and we love what we do, mm-hmm. you still want to do something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I remember doing this, and I, and I had my experience at the American Film Market, and I thought it was really funny about it was that you walking through, there's a big disconnect between the stuff that you saw was going on and all the buzz and press at, mm-hmm. at film festivals, sure. and then what it was actually being the hardcore, what was really being sold and was sure. really being bought at the film festivals. Sure. I mean at the film markets. They were your standard um, horror, horror genres and your action genres, hmm. and like stars such as like you know Dolph Lundgren and um, Stallone yeah. were still big sellers because they will always translate well overseas. Sure, sure. Um, I saw like a, a film with Dustin Hoffman and Emma Thompson um, still being peddled around, like you hadn't bu- found a buyer yet. I mean, you, that's where the reality right. set in. It right. was like we're talking about Dustin Hoffman and <laughs> Emma Thompson. They eventually found a buyer and stuff yeah. like that. But the reality was, you mentioned about the, the studios mm-hmm. m- just making blockbusters. Yeah. There was a, I remember reading a, an article saying that the, because of the, the economy, the studios slashed their like, film slates in half. Sure. And they were going to only make like, a handful of films. Sure. Um, and, but, it, but if you were over 30... You weren't like an actor over thirty wasn't part of it. Only a few A-listers, but it, it be- basically became like you know they they were very specific. Like we're gonna make films for this demographic, mm-hmm. 
And then, you know, actors that were over 30, 40 or something like that, you know, were part of now this peddling their films at the, at the film markets. Sure. And so you, you, you got this perspective of like, okay, everything's kind of just wacky. And, and um, I was mentioning to Frederick last week, my friend, that what I learned from this whole experience was that the core of the business model of film mm-hmm. is um, like the movie studios are not in the business of selling film. Okay. Or, or making films, mm-hmm. they are their main business um, uh, core is exploiting licenses, right. which is they buy up film, they buy up film property, they buy up like other property mm-hmm. because they are going to do nothing more than exploit that license. Oh, we sure. got the Transformer license, sure. so we're going to exploit the toys, we're going to exploit sure. the T-shirts, we're going to exploit the movie. The movie yeah. just kind of kicks it off for us, but sure. everything else that's, that's really a big commercial for us to get yeah. all the stuff sold, yeah. and. When you really look at the like the the core principles of how that runs, it puts it in perspective. Mm-hmm. Because you know, basic business sure. is either you're selling goods or services. And sure. I think a lot of young filmmakers, independent filmmakers, think that the, the film they have is their their product, their right. goods. Yeah. And so when they, they they put all this blood, sweat, and tears in it, and they hand it off to a distributor um, that or a studio, mm-hmm. the studio just says, "I just want that license. Sure. I want to have that license to the, the, the Napoleon Dynamite it's, yeah. stuff." So it, we can it's do almost this. like the studios kind of became like too savvy for their own good. You know, like they they understand the value of marketing, understand action figures, and you know all that other shit. And it's it's interesting. And I mean, I guess from a film purist perspective, that's kind of sad, but it's it's interesting at the same time. Yeah. So we we will have to still resort to the independence sure. to 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 push the boundaries. Sure. But one of the things I remember learning about the true independence, what makes things independent, mm-hmm. is that if you're going to make an independent film, make it independent, sure. meaning that your story at a core would have to be something created that the studios would never touch. Sure. You can't do like another romantic comedy, a rom-com, mm-hmm. because the studios would always kick that out with right. better better production sure. budget, you know, better, better actors, actors and, and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. You know, but if you put, you had to put another twist on it that the, the studios would never touch because you have to provide something to the audience as a niche right. that says, when I go to independent, I want to see something that no studio is going to sure. touch. Yeah. You know, and then that sort of becomes the farm league before yeah. you get you know, brought into the studio system right. to say, now now you can make yeah. your now you make your cash cow. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You know, to, you know, to talk about like the the cinematographer I was talking about earlier, Greg Frazier. You know, he definitely kind of started off in an independent market, and I'm just curious to see how. I would love to pick his brain sometime just to see how going into the studio system, how that feels and what it's like, and and how that's been. You know, just as a cinematographer's perspective, I'd be curious to hear that that side of the story. I have a good friend who's um. He's somewhat related to um, Adam McKay, who was the director yes. and writer of all uh, the Will F- and Will Ferrell's partner. Yeah, yeah. So Anchorman and stuff like that. Yeah. And I was talking to him about it, and he said that because it's you'd be surprised. It's like even you know Will Ferrell and McKay, mm-hmm. even though they have a lot of stock and they've sure. you know, done a lot of stuff, they still fall victim to the same corporate policies as anybody else that works in a corporation. Hmm. Like corporate politics, sure, sure, and it's and you know and even those artists and stuff like that, they're they still are victims of like working for the man. I mean, I was reading this article with um, uh, Angelina Jolie when they did mm-hmm. their first um, press junket for or uh, can for Shark Tales, okay. you know, because she was yeah. just a voice yeah, actor right. for yeah. DreamWorks, yeah. And then she said that she showed up with like there was Jack Black and Will Smith. And they never met, you know, because they recorded their voices sure. separately, and right. they were there, and they were like forced to sort of. Be like monkeys jumping right. on this shark, inflatable right. shark out in the o- in the water right. while the <laughs> oh photographers take yeah. pictures of them. 
And that's where she had this moment of like, what the hell's happened? Yeah. You know, she's like, she had this moment of like, have I just become this monkey? You know, yeah. is, and it's funny just to hear that big stars like that, sure. even they are put to a situation where the studio's like, get on that shark yeah. <laughs> and go out, you know, we go out paid, in the water. We just, we just paid you millions of dollars to work for one day. The least you could do is go on a shark. For, it's, it's, yeah. it's, yeah. it's fascinating. Yeah. 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 So when, I, when all the stuff I, I learned at the, the, the American film market, mm-hmm. the AFM, that's what gave me the perspective. It gave me the, 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 the confidence to say, I could probably make, make stuff anywhere. Once I kind of get a, a better idea of what the business uh, model is. Right. So if you did it on a small scale, mm-hmm. is there something you can exploit a license on a small scale? Like So you're mirroring sort of sure. what the, the studios did. That's cool. And then I realized yeah. that the online world, that's where the great barrier um, divide is. Not divide, I'm sorry. It's um, the equal, level, um, equal playing field is. Mm-hmm. The equal playing field is that any artist like us, we have access to Vimeo, YouTube. Sure. We still have the same access to the same audience as mm-hmm. the studios do. Sure. Um, you know, these one of these crazy little viral videos, you know, go create like gangbusters. Sure. I mean, that poor girl, Rebecca Friday. Black, know. Friday, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she paid $2,000, $2,500 to this company to make the video. Sure. You know, so it's, you know, shits and giggles what they did. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I'm curious to see how she feels because, yeah, it's like part of me wants to say, like, oh, poor girl, because she's just getting eaten alive online. But at the same time, her video that she is what it's the most viewed video online. Oh, yeah. Mm. But not only that, but now the song is just turned over. I they sung it on Glee, yeah, you know, they sung I saw it on like you know, Colbert and um, it's made over Jimmy Fallon, you know, iTunes or something, too. It's, it's yeah, and the guy crazy. who wrote the song, who wrote the company, yeah, you know, he defended her, says, you know, people shouldn't be ragging on her. Sure. I was the one who wrote the song, sure. He goes, but they're just. It is it, it, it is turned onto its whole new life. Mm-hmm. I mean, my daughter is. I could hear her humming it. Friday, yeah. Friday. <laughs> yeah. so the, but the reality is, is that stuff happens. They had the same access, to the same audience. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of understanding how to market, how sure. to penetrate the market. Sure. And that's where. Then I said, took all this time studying about online marketing, mm-hmm. how that works, and it's just like it, it gave me that perspective of like, okay, so whatever you create, you still have to do a lot to. You still have to be the P.T. Barnum and go, mm-hmm. you know, ladies and gentlemen, right. you got to see what I got behind this curtain here. Right. And uh, so when I came up here, you know, that's what I was trying to do is um, get this uh, project launched. Um, but honestly, since we moved up here, life happens. Sure. You know, I have a daughter and yeah. I spent most of my time just making sure she's up and running. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I just had to make sure I was happy here. Because, sure. you know, I was born, pretty much born and raised in Southern California, so I don't sure. know any difference. Sure. So coming to the Northwest is a kind of a shock to me. Yeah, so I mean, you grew up where surf was, was five minutes away, and now it's, yeah, what, it was, what, an hour and a half? I mean, yes, yeah. an hour, yeah, hour yeah. and a half. I, I've, so that is a big lifestyle change that I've had to kind of deal with, yeah. you know. And uh, so my career, or this work and film, that stuff has been like way sure. behind the priorities, sure. but now that things are kind of settled and I've been here long enough, um, I kind of came across this project I was telling um, uh, my wife about mm-hmm. and uh, my friend Randall, the screenwriter, about the other mm-hmm. day. And I was like, you know, I think I got an idea for a film, just because no other reason than it doesn't make any sense to make a film right now. Maybe mm-hmm. you know, because sure. there's no product, but just simply because as an artist, I feel like. I, I really think I've got a beat on a story. Yeah. Because I was thinking to myself, like, okay, here I am in Portland. Mm-hmm. It's a really cool city. And there's mm-hmm. this, and not only is Portland, but outs, the outskirts of Portland or sure. Portland, all, and all parts of Oregon. Mm-hmm. You can create something that looks so non Hollywood. Sure. We're like, you know, we've sure. seen so many student films or so many independent films. Mm-hmm. You're like, 
Yep. I've seen that before. Yeah. You know, because yeah. that landscape, that the, the, even totally. the, the tonal haze of, of Southern California. It's, it's so recognizable to people. <laughs> that right. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. just like, but when you go to any other place, it's different. Mm-hmm. It just feels different. And definitely True. up here, it feels different. The, yeah. the air is clear. There's, mm-hmm. You don't get that haze. Um, so just, the, you know, photography-wise, it sure. just looks differently. So then I was thinking, like, okay, i got to be able to come up with something one day. Like, I have friends with actors. You know, sure. I have... I understand, like, sort of the casting process down mm-hmm. in L.A., and I go, I'm friends with a, you know, a, a screenwriter that's well-proven, sure. you know? Sure, And then he goes, I'm friends with a cinematographer that is, you know, has this, the, the exact style that I love, yeah. you know, that, that yeah. kind of naturalistic style that is hip to all the new technology. Sure, sure. I was like, I just got to be not an idiot and come mm-hmm. up with some idea for a project sure. that doesn't involve too much with, but utilizes the resources I yeah. have. And all of a sudden, I, I, it was one day I was just walking the dog. Yeah. You know how that stuff happens? Totally, you just have like a yeah. creative like yeah. impulse like, uh-huh. where you just go bonk. Yeah, it suddenly makes sense. And, yeah. and honestly, it's been the first thing I've kind of been excited about it for in, in months. Thought, yeah, like know. a feature film or a short? It's a feature. feature? Yeah. Okay, cool. well, I, and I was talking to my friend Randall. He's like, mm-hmm. why do you do a feature? going to do a webisode. I go, maybe. Sure. Either way, it's going to be shot, I think, all at the same time. Yeah. yeah. But I feel like, because I've done a lot of movies. I, said, I work professionally in, mm-hmm. in the industry. But I've never... You know, I, I still yet have had a feature to my resume. Sure. You go, and do I need a res, you know, feature to my resume? Who knows? But yeah. we're talking about resume. At this point in my age, I was like, I think, like, screw the resume. I just want to do it sure. to say I did it. Yeah. And I feel like I, I got this beat in the story, um, mm-hmm. and I, I got, I've already written the outline cool. in, like, yeah. a week. Yeah. This, is all, this all happened in a week. That's awesome. So yeah. then, and I feel like this is the whole reason to have this podcast is, yeah. like, now I want to take it and take it like every week to say, okay, this sure. is what I've done. I've written sure. like the first 10, 30 pages. Mm-hmm. It's now it's like, so hopefully yeah. people who listen into this thing will go, oh, I'm following these guys' sure. journey. Because, sure. you know, the, the inspiration I got for doing this podcast was when I first started a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. um, listening to podcasts, I stumbled upon a podcast called uh, Jim, and, uh, Jim and Sam Go to Hollywood. Okay. It was about two screenwriters, a screenwriting partnership mm-hmm. that came from Minnesota. They used to own restaurants or a restaurant together. They packed up their families, moved to L.A. Wow. or Pasadena. They had a gig already lined up at like Disney or something. Okay. They lost a the gig, and they were just doing the rounds as writers. And the thing about it, what I realized is that everybody was tuning in every week because we wanted to see if they were making sure. it. Sure. Everyone is it, the core of the story was not necessarily what they wrote, what they wrote about. Mm-hmm. People, what the core of the story was like, like fr- frankly, you know, I could tell you my story, the the script idea, but who cares? Because no okay. nobody really cares if they're listening. They just want to mm-hmm. say, are you, will you make it? Right. Because I don't know if you ever been to like you know you've been to the film festivals and honestly, at at the end of every film, there's usually like somebody raising their hand and some other filmmaker going, how'd you get the funding? Sure. How did you do this? How did you do that? Yeah. Nobody, like hardly everyone would ever ask like about the film or the, mm-hmm. the, the, the meaning of the film. Sure. People sure. wanted to know logistically, how did you even did do, you do it? it? Sure. Yeah. And so I realized that is the same um, thing we talked about, the, the gold rush. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the selling the dream. Sure. You know, people are more interested in, in that underdog story of, sure. of following somebody people like, that, oh, yeah. I've, I've heard you go from nothing. Yeah. You know, penniless to. to and I, I, I think it's. I mean, it's it's good that you're having this here in Portland because I think people in Portland especially love that underdog story and they they love they love and they believe in art art here. And you know, outside of the United States, filmmaking is viewed as an art everywhere. I mean, it's films are funded by the government because it's viewed as an art form. And here in the states, it's it's a business. And so, but it, it's one been one refreshing thing about Portland is that I think you, I think you could find people here who are 
I think you have an easier time finding people who are more inclined to get behind the project just because they want to create something they think is, is art or, right. you know, whatever. That actor that we know, um, uh, Dustin. Dustin. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, he's apparently he's going to France to study yes. clown school yeah. Yeah. before he goes to L.A. Yeah. But he was mentioning these. Look, if you have a great project, you, you they come out of the woodworks so and people want to help you. It's true. It's nuts. So, it, it's crazy. I mean, that that feature city baby. I mean, it was. Yeah, there's no money. I but I, and but I still couldn't believe exactly how many people came out of the woodworks to to help make that yeah. project possible. It looks great. I can't wait to uh, see more of it. Yeah. And but uh, yeah. so anyway, the, the, yeah. the, this podcast with J- Sam and Jim, mm-hmm. the, the short story was is like I was following it. You know, everyone was following for a while, sure. and all of a sudden. They stopped. I didn't hear anything. Their podcast. Right. All they, I did. I didn't. I did remember they were mentioning that they had this uh, project they were pitching to one of the networks um, that they got um, permission from Stephen King to adapt one of his short stories. Okay. And that was it. You know, a year, two years go by, and you know, my wife and I are watching um, science, the Sci-Fi Channel, uh-huh. which is the only thing that she watches. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> she hates like romantic comedies. She likes. Like her favorite film is The Matrix. Anyway, yeah. the <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. but we're watching it, and uh, the movie, uh, the show Haven comes on, okay. and it's the it's the new sci-fi show, and mm-hmm. we're watching it, and we're liking it. Sure. And then actually, I looked at the executive producers, and it's the guys, Sam oh. and Jim. They made it. Huh. So the reason they don't do their podcast anymore because they're too busy doing showrunners and working. being yeah. uh, working yeah. as you know the, the executive producers for Haven. Sure. And again, it's just that sort of gives you the inspiration, like. Oh my God! They did it. Yeah, you know, I cool. remember hearing them talk about this, and yeah. and you you would get this real sense like they had families and they were about to cash it in. They're about to like go back to Minnesota sure. and just do their restaurant thing. Yeah, patience in, the, in this industry is hard, but uh, you have to you have to be you have to, you have to be willing to put up with having that door shut in your face constantly. Yes, you know, and and being exhausted and believe that it's it's for a good cause and believe that you'll thank you. Um, you know, that's. I mean, I I constantly feel like just thrown in the towel and just being like, all right, I'm a failure. I'm I'm going to be 30 this year. I haven't done anything, so it's like, what the hell, you know? But it's like I think you just got to be patient. You just got to keep keep plugging along, keep hoping to do something. That's crazy. That that's funny because your perspective, you're turning 30. You know, like when I would turn 30, you know, um, I you know I was running an apartment at Sony, Sony PlayStation. Yeah. It was like boom, it was hitting the thing, right. and I was was running the movie department yeah. there. And um, you know, shit happens. Sure. You know, shit years happen. late, yeah. years yeah. later, you know, I lost my job after yeah. eleven years and stuff like that. And then a new reality sets in. Sure. And so here we are. Here it's like mm-hmm. I never expected myself to be up in sure. Portland. Sure. But here I am. I'm you know going to turn forty next year. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's funny. Like hearing you almost turn thirty, and you like you have these goal. Like I got to you know, yeah. this self doubt we have upon ourselves. It's true. And then, you know. Obviously, having my daughter has given me a lot of perspective. Sure. The one thing I'm inspired by her is that she's fearless in, in whatever projects she wants to do, art projects or craft projects. Sure. You know, she, you know I, th- I probably overthink things sometimes sure. and not execute. Yeah. Where she's just, like, executing all the time. Sure. And if she fails, whatever. You know, move on to yeah. the next thing. And she yeah, does it. cool. And yeah. it, that kind of, I draw inspiration from that. That's but really it cool. also gives you perspective of everything else that's going on. Sure. But um, yeah, like that play. That play was awesome. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> so they're just. I mean, they're, I'm laughing because sometimes it's you know, but it's it's ama- It was amazing. I was it was so fun and so cool for Christine I to see. And I was, oh man, yeah. and I it's amazing to see where she's come from because it was a little awkward for us coming up here. I mean, we didn't yeah. know anybody. Sure. She didn't have any any friends. Sure. And so we were really worried, and you know, we only have one daughter, you know, right. one kid. So 
But now she's like tons of friends, and it's yeah. just uh, it's and, uh, yeah, she just amazing, super popular right now, and yeah. yeah it's awesome. So okay, great. And it seems like Kendall's yeah. doing well at Rent Track too, right? It's yeah. I mean, I mean, it seems like Christy Christy loves her, and you know, oh. it's yeah. So it's, yeah. Kendall likes um, she loves it up here. Yeah. So it's just it's, good. Uh, it's all yeah. good. I think now it's just for me. It's like I'm trying to find my stride, and yeah. it's just funny now that I've. I've got all this work coming in because for the longest time I didn't have yeah. many projects, but sure. now it's like boom. Sure. So on top of all trying to do this, uh, you know, you still have money to you know right. bills to pay. Right. And um, but what I what I want to do is I'm going to keep working on this. Uh, like I originally came up here because I had a business plan for this online site, a children's mm-hmm. site. Yeah. Um, that I was going to launch, and mm-hmm. I still plan to launch, but I just honestly got this n- inspirational kick that yeah. like I think I could just make this film, and not say make it fast, but. Mm-hmm. You know how it is. It's like three, four weeks. You yeah. know, you you shoot your film, you're done. Sure. And then it's in the, you know, the old sure. term of sure. in the can, in the can. Yeah. or on the hard drive now. Yeah. yeah. It's uh now, now you can deal with it. Yeah. But I really feel like um, I've got something that um, that I'd be excited to work on. Cool. So as I finish it up, as I kind of write the first couple pages, I finish the script. You know, this is I hope will be a yeah, continuation. No, I'd, I'd love to so. see. I'd love to see how it progresses. Yeah. Right. For me, a version of the script. Because honestly, or, or whatever. I'm yeah. I'm plan- I'm thinking in terms of like I'm writing it for the the actors that I'm friends with. You sure. know. Yeah, that's good. And that's, I, that's and good. I plan to like hand it off to my screenwriting friend. Yeah. To like help me co-write it sure. or script doctorate. Yeah. But then it's all designed around sort of like very much the same style of uh, cinematography use. Cool. Then I come to you like, okay, I think I got this thing. Cool. You know this. You know, you want to shoot it. You know, I mean, I want to. I want to sh- shoot a film again so bad. I mean, it's like after you know, I'm shooting Portlandia, but after that's done, it's like I don't know what the hell I'm going to be doing with myself. So it's like, and I really want to shoot a film. And I plan yeah. to try to. I wanted to shoot it sort of on the off season, sure, when it's not so busy, because I, I definitely wanted to use take Which advantage is the winter of here. the yeah. winter, the yeah. and kind of been through one winter and stuff like that, kind of going rains but yeah you know i think we get creative you know <laughs> yeah no you know we, we, we get creative and you actually saw it i think in one of the worst winters at least i've experienced so far it's just been it's been a dreary winter up here uh, i have no perspective so i'm like oh really i just thought this is the way it's like all the time yeah, <laughs> now, like come next winter hopefully it's not the same you'll be like ah, oh, it's not so bad so it's not clear yeah yeah but even yeah. if it's it rains like like today it rained hard where it was but it only lasts for a little long, for yeah. a little bit and then yeah. it stops but you can the the and, and, and it's beautiful, you know. You, you talked about that film, Graffiti Balls, where it's it's a kind of a simple little take on a romantic comedy, but it's like it has such a tone to it because we were able to shoot in a beautiful city. Where I mean, Portland is beautiful in the winter. You know, yeah. it's the browns and the grays are just it's great. You know, and it's shooting a, fil- uh, a feature that time of year would be would be really awesome visually. It'd be really cool, I think. Well, cool. So that's um, as yeah. I eat this chip. Yeah. <laughs> this is a good place. I like this place. This place is great, right? It's chill and it, it gets crowded sometimes, but it's um, I just feel like it's very Portland. There's a great picture of Gus Van Sant on the wall too. It's actually in the next booth. He's like smoking it, smoking a cigarette or something. But oh, he's young. Yeah, super young. He looks young. Yeah, um, I love these velvets. Yeah. Velvet art here. Yeah. So again, we're at Dots. Yeah. I'll I'll mention that in the intro before yeah. I do it. Southeast Portland. Southeast Portland Dots Cafe. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. Yeah. There's a lot. Of, Bunch of little funky things. I love the fact that the Rocky Horror yeah, is plays across the, across the street yeah. every Saturday night. Yeah, you know, next door there's this uh, Hawaiian cafe at um, another great Portland story for me, anyways. That it just reminds me how much I love it here. I shot a music video here like a year and a half ago, and we were looking for a restaurant, a diner that we we're going to shoot a, a breakfast scene in. It was like the main characters. The video starts off. They're reading a newspaper and they see this wild animal, an elephant, roaming the street. And anyhow, they he. Um, we approached the people at NoHo's, and we wanted to see if we could shoot there. NoHo's is the cafe next door. We wanted to see if we could shoot there a Sunday morning. 
but because of our schedule, we wanted to get in there at like, I think it was like 6 a.m. that day and shoot at like 7. But No Hose doesn't open for business, I think, until like 11 or something. And so, <laughs> but the owner said, you know, it's not a big deal. I'll have my guys come in early. I'll have them cook you guys a breakfast. So like, <laughs> he, he had his, his, his staff come in like four hours early, cooked us this Hawaiian breakfast. Wow. I don't think he charged us for the breakfast. And it is, and we shot at the restaurant for three hours and we we're gone. How you know, is it? Like, yeah, it was, that's unbelievable. That doesn't happen, you know, especially coming from L.A. People are like... No, no, they're savvy enough to go, well, you, you pay me. Exactly. And they're not going to open what? four hours early. Right. Cook <laughs> it's crazy. What are the <laughs> yeah. permits like? that, or, or what is it like? Is it, there's a lot of things, like wink, wink, like yeah, favors here. Yeah, it's, yeah I, I, I think so. I mean, I, I'm usually not very involved on that side of things, but like on the music video, I was to a degree, and I think it was as easy as the, as the director or the production contacting the film office up here, saying they want a permit, and then boom, they have a permit for the entire city of Portland. You know, it has limitations. They can't film on the you know, in the middle of the street. They're right. limited to sidewalks and stuff like that. But it's like we had access to shoot the entire city just because he contacted them, saying, and that he wants to shoot. And maybe I'm shooting myself in the foot because I, I just I couldn't believe how easy that was. I mean, that was just awesome. And I hope it stays that way. I, I don't want Portland to become savvy enough where they're like. <laughs> I mean, getting a permit in Los Angeles sucks. It's a pain in the ass. You know, oh, it takes no. all day, and it's it's expensive. And That's one thing I couldn't I couldn't fathom is that you know, sorry, and I go into politics, but yeah. like Schwarzenegger being the, the governor, being sure. from in the Hollywood system, fighting it did so nothing yeah. really to help like build up a tax incentive. I think right. he did like his his like last three months of office. Sure, but I mean, honestly, he had like two terms or whatever how long yeah. he was in, yeah. in office, but. So much to 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 bring back, um, you know, business into that into the business that made him a star. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. it was just weird. Yeah. But um, yeah. anyway, Anyhow. so yeah. that's about it. So yeah. we can wrap up this podcast, um, cool. which is great. I usually try to make this an hour, so I'll edit out some stuff to cool. like all the all my mumbling. all the ums and ahs and my, uh, me, what me, am I talking about? Yeah. yeah, I have a tendency to like say things that. Don't make sense. Like sure. I'm trying to sound like I know what I'm talking about, but then I I, I get it off. I know. I know. Um, I'm 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 the same. <laughs> this is a new experience for me, so I'm hoping and ramble too much. No, it's cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted you know I, you know talk more, but um, yeah. So yeah, thanks thanks for having me. Thanks yeah. thanks for coming out to dots. Yeah, it's yeah, sweet. And that concludes my interview with cinematographer Bryce Fortner over at Dots Cafe in Northeast Portland. And just a reminder that these interviews are from an older podcast that I recorded about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago. So some of the information is already out of date. Camera technology, digital media player technology, things like that. So it's quite fascinating to listen back to these and see how quickly things have changed over the last two years. Again, thank you for listening to the Film Trooper podcast. And be sure to check out the following episodes as they get into... Uh, some other subject matters, and we'll get this podcast up and running and get a little bit more of a groove going and start talking about really what Film Trooper is all about, helping you as filmmakers become entrepreneurs. Again, thank you for your time. Enjoy yourselves. I'll see you later.